You know, I, uh, for, for years now, I was marked by an event that happened in uh, the summer of uh, 94 in Colorado Springs, Colorado. I was there at, uh, well, I should say Fort Collins, Colorado. I was there with the Campus Crusade for Christ. It was the global family of Campus Crusade for Christ. And we were there for an all-staff gathering, which is thousands and thousands and thousands of people. And we were in the Fort Collins University, or the whatever that is, Colorado, Colorado University. Uh, we were there in their big auditorium, and a lady named Nancy Lee DeMoss got up and spoke. And she said something to the effect of, this is probably not the message that I intended to give, but I feel like God wants me to give it anyways. And uh, she said, I, I'm dealing with a lot of coldness in my heart, a lot of apathy, and I don't know where it's coming from, uh, but I feel like God's kind of put a finger on it last night, and it, it's unsettling to me, but it's my pride. I want to control a lot of things because I'm afraid. And uh, she said, I'm afraid of what you think of me. I'm afraid of not being successful. I'm afraid of all these things. And because of that, I try to control them. And she just kind of, in a very broken way, started confessing sin. And I don't know what, other than the Spirit of God, can, uh, you know, got into her heart to say, if any of you just feel like you need to get up and confess something, I just want to open up the microphone and allow you to do that. If there's something that's blocking you and God, I just want to give you the chance to do that. Well, her talk started at 10 o'clock on a Tuesday morning, and the confession time went on for four days. I mean, till midnight each day. And I remember thinking that the stories in that room were so surprising to me because I'd been already for a couple of days with this group, and... Um, I just would have never imagined how much pain was hiding in the hearts of those people. I just never would have guessed it. How much brokenness. Uh, people just got up and, and they shocked me with what they confessed on a microphone. And Bill Bright got up and said, listen, nobody's going to get fired. So if, if you need to get up and you need to just say, this is what's been going on in my life. This is the brokenness that I encountered years ago. Or this is whatever it is. And, and I just want you to know that you can do that. I mean, I could name names right now that you go, really? I'd never do that. But you'd know the names of some of the people that got up and confessed things that I thought, my gosh, wow. Uh, and, and when I read the story of the book of Ruth in these four short chapters, when I look at it, and I know that someday in heaven we'll be sitting across the table and we'll be lingering long over uh, meals together. I hope you know that. Real tables, real food, all of that happens in heaven someday. Uh, you know, one of the favorite things we'll do is say, so tell me the story of how you got saved. Tell me how God saved you. And at some point, you'll probably be sitting across from somebody named Ruth and say, yeah, I, yeah, I know you're, I want to hear from your point. What, what happened? You know what she'd have to say? There was a lot of brokenness in my life. I was not raised in a believing home. Ruth is a Moabite. And while that may not mean much to us, the original readers of this book would go, Oh, Moab. Yeah. I mean, just read read uh, Genesis chapter 19 and you'll find out the ugly, awful, terrible warts of a story that happened to form the Moabite 
people. It's ugly, right? You wouldn't know that unless she told you. But there's brokenness, there's hurt, there's unbelief, there's pain, there's unresolved hurt in the hearts of the people sitting around you. And, and, and that tends to be uh, perspective shaping, how we view God, how we view ourselves, how we view each other. And yet we can sing and we can dress up nice and we can put on a good face because we're not obviously just going to uh, bring our, uh, our stuff out in every occasion. But listen, the truth is you have no idea the hidden hurts that are going on in the people all around you. Just because they look like they got it together, don't, don't buy that. Maybe they do, maybe they don't, but every single one of us needs God's redeeming love in our life. The story of Ruth is a story of redemption. The story of Ruth is a story of defeat and a story of rising from that defeat because of the love of God. I don't know a lot of you at an in-depth level. I know a couple of you. And I know your stories, and I know some of the defeats and some of the hurt that you've faced in the past. I know some of the stories of how God has repaired that. I want this to be a part of your story of redemption. And so I want to invite you to pray with me and ask God to help you hear His voice. I want you to almost imagine for a moment that, that, this, that nobody came but you this morning. And there were two chairs and a coffee table, and you sat down, and we just open the Bible, and God just started to speak to your heart about what's going on in your life. All right? Let's pray. Father, we praise you and thank you for your son Jesus, our Redeemer, uh, the one who was willing to pay the price so that we could be brought into safety, out of slavery, out of darkness, out of terrible, into the light, into the life of Christ. We praise you for that. And Father, we just thank you that you're so kind to us every day. I pray, God, that you would help us to hear your voice as we look at the words of Scripture this morning. And that it wouldn't be about Ruth, and it wouldn't be about Boaz, that we could see that it's all about a story of your love through your Son, Jesus Christ, for us. For us. Not some stranger on the other side of the world somewhere in ancient history, but for us today pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Just to give you a road map, I want you to always have a, a road map of where we're going today. So we're in Ruth chapter 4, 13 through 20. It's right down to the end of the book. Am I saying that right? Yeah, it's through 20? 20, 22. Okay, there we go. Uh, so that's what I meant to say. Uh, but in chapter 4, verse 13, you see Ruth's undared for dream come true it's Ruth's undared for dream her unspoken hope her undared for dream comes true in chapter 4 verse 13 in verses 14 to 16 we see Naomi's joy sitting in her lap Naomi's joy is sitting in her lap and then in 17 through 22 we see God's invitation for anyone 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 to trust him let me recap that Verse 13, Ruth's undared for dream is a reality now. Verses 14 to 16, Naomi's joy finally sitting in her lap. Verses 17 through 22, God's invitation for anyone to trust Him. Listen to these words. Verse four, or chapter 4, verse 1 says, Now Boaz had gone up from there to the gate, and he sat down. 
and behold, that Redeemer was who was spoken of before to Boaz invited him to turn aside and sit down here. And all the elders came, uh, ten elders from the city came, and they also sat. And Naomi said to the redeemer, or pardon me, and then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. Now, all the way through the book, what do we keep seeing? Providence. Over and over again, providence. The story of how God did it. Remember that these events are being written about two generations later, right? So somebody's looking back in time and saying, just so you know how King David arrived on this throne, it's not always a neat and tidy package, but the providence of God brought it about. As Boaz goes into the gate there at Bethlehem, it just so happens that God brings this other redeemer along and plops him down so they can sit and talk about this. About Ruth about how Naomi's land could be redeemed. And Naomi had told Ruth, you need to just hang tight and sit still. This man, Boaz, will go and deal with the business that needs to be done, and he won't rest until it's settled. Uh, he did redeem her. He did buy the parcel of land that, owned to, that Naomi uh, owed, owned, and he bought it back, and with it he bought the hand of Ruth to be his wife. So when you see verse 13, you're seeing almost the key verse of the whole book. It finally happens. Verse 13, so Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. You know, you have to look at that verse in light of the whole story, right? I mean, chapter 1, you can't help but think that Ruth might have been a little bit rash. A little bit naive, a little bit reckless. Chapter 1, she said the most famous words in the whole book. Naomi says, listen, I'm a widow, you're a widow, you should go back to Moab. You should go back, you should remarry while you can. Don't hook yourself to me because I don't have much of a future. Go home. And what does Ruth say? Those famous words we've all heard at weddings before. Stop urging me to leave you. Your people will be my people. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your God will be my God. Your country will be my country. Where you die, I'm going to die. Well, we know how the story ends, but in chapter 1, this seems like a very reckless thing to say. But in chapter 4, and we see the end of the story, we go, man, wow. Wow, that's amazing. These words of grace that come out of her mouth were reckless at the time, but they were based in a promise from God. She believed in God, and because she believed in God, she was willing to follow Naomi into an unknown. And I just want you to think on this for a moment. You don't yet know what God's about to do in your life, but He does. You don't yet know. You might be in the worst of a valley right now and look around you and go, there's no way this is going to turn out good. Yeah, but you don't know what God's about to do. Ruth at the time, all she had in her broken heart was a little bit of hope that the God of, of Israel was exactly who he said he was. And that he would be who he said he was. 
And so I want to invite you into this reckless trust of God. Now, maybe some of you have already done that. You've trusted God, and you know that between you and God, you are okay, and you're saved, and all of that. I just want to encourage you, trust Him again. Trust Him again and again. Trust Him now with the relationships that are broken in your life. Trust Him with your finances. Trust Him with your reputation. Trust Him in ways you've never imagined, because God is faithful. And He will take care of you. Hebrews chapter 11 says, Without faith it is impossible to please God. He who comes to God must first believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. What would it look like for you to trust God with the thing you're struggling most with right now? Can you, can you put a finger on the thing you're struggling most with? Or would that be hard for you to parcel out and find? Is there something in particular you're going, man, I am really wrestling with this. When I look at Ruth, and I see the faith that she had in chapter 1, and I see it rewarded in 4.13, that the dream finally came true, I find myself challenged to say, God, I want to believe in you, not just for salvation, but for today. For today. I want to trust you. Life has beat the hope out of Naomi and Ruth in chapter 1. And yet they continued to walk forward, believing that God would show up. And here we are in chapter 4, verse 13, that Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. Can you imagine if someone had told her in chapter 1, listen, by the way, God's going to show up and he's going to blow you away. You're going to get Boaz, who you don't know yet, but he's wealthy, generous, kind, compassionate, godly. He's a protector. God's going to show up. What a, what a great promise awaited Ruth that she didn't know. You have this promise in your own heart that God will never leave you, never forsake you, and that as you continue to trust Him, it honors Him. So keep trusting Him and watch the outcome of your faith. The impossible dream. you got to remember and. Where we started in 3.18 where Naomi tells Ruth, you're just going to have to wait. Boaz is going to go take care of it. You don't have to do anything but wait. Well, just imagine her look, the look on her face as she hears that knock on the door after he's gone and dealt with all that. Boom, boom, boom. Hey, Boaz, how'd it go? Where's Ruth? She's in there. I need to talk to her. And here's what he says. And, and Ruth, waiting with bated breath, heart pounding in her chest, as he smiles and he says, I redeemed you. Will you be my wife? Can you see her just tears in her eyes? Can you see her jumping up and down? This is crazy. I can't believe this is happening, right? It's such good news in chapter 4, verse 13. And the Bible has that unique way of describing things. That they consummated their marriage and God gave her a son. These are all things. Remember, she was childless for 10 years or 15 years living in Moab. Married to a guy named Malon. Right? So finally, she's pregnant and she has this gift. And she's amazed. This is a beautiful picture of what it looks like. We don't know how God's going to answer the, the hope of your heart. We don't know. He's not predictable. Wayne said this the other day in group. He said, You know, God's not predictable in how he's going to show up. The only thing's predictable is that he's kind. Right? We don't know how he's going to answer when you step out in faith. We know he will. 
So I want to encourage you. Trust Him again. Trust Him again. He is faithful. He will show up. You don't know how He's going to work it out, but He does. All right? Well, verse 14, it says, Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may His name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Verse 16, try to use your mind's eye to see this. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap, and she became his nurse. And this is, this is something Naomi could have never imagined either. Right? Let's go back to the start of that. The women, who we've only heard from one other time in this whole book. Chapter 1, verse 19. These are women that would have known Naomi growing up. They were childhood friends of hers. They knew the story of Naomi. They saw her leave with Elimelech 15 years before. They saw her young, vibrant, healthy, beautiful. And then she goes out and gets beat up by life. Comes back a widow with a Moabite daughter-in-law. And now they see her, and remember, in chapter 1, she says, don't call me Naomi, because Naomi means pleasant. Call me Mara, because Mara means bitter. I left here full, and I came back empty. I left here with a husband, and we had two sons, and now I, I come back empty. I've always thought that statement was a little hard on Ruth. I mean, I came back empty, all I got is her. <laughs> Wow, Naomi, that's, that's kind of harsh. Little did she know that the empty Ruth would turn out to be one of the greatest blessings in her life. You know, God's like that, isn't He? You never know when you meet somebody what your future friendship, relationship might be with them. God will surprise you sometimes. It says that these women spoke up for the second time and they say, Look how good God has been to you, Naomi. Let's, last time they spoke up, it was in grief and sorrow and sadness. This time they speak up in celebration and gratitude for how good God has been to Naomi. And what do they say? He's not left you without a redeemer. Someone to buy you back. Someone to uh, rescue you. Someone to take you out of the darkness, bring you into the light. God has not left you without this man, Boaz, who's come to be a generous protector, a provider for you in your life. He has given you that, but it's not only him that she, they're pointing to, they're also pointing to the child that is about to be born to them. How do we know that? Well, it says here, he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher in your old age. Well, I want you to think about what they've said. A restorer of life. You know, I like, um, got a, got a, ambition, a dream. I like I like watching those restoration shows where they take something that's just all junky and they strip it down, strip it of its paint, beat the dents out of it and make it all nice and restore it to its former glory, right? Like I, I love old Coke machines. I've got a dream of, of getting one of those old Coke machines and, and getting it restored and having it all painted perfect and put in my garage so I can put various and sundry uh, cold beverages in that. Right? I, I want one of those restored Coke machines someday. It's just so cool to me to see that. Well, what are they saying that this grandson will be to Naomi? 
he's going to restore the dream that you had when you were younger. You remember when you had that dream of what life would be someday and it got crushed out of you by the reality of life, the harshness of life? This grandson, this future redeemer that it's pointing to, he's going to be a restorer of life. One of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis after he met and married Joy Davidman. He said, I never imagined in my 50s that God would give me the joy that so escaped me in my 20s. Isn't that a great statement? I never imagined in my 50s God would give me the joy that eluded me in my 20s. Like it was just such a shocking thing. But you know something? I'm a dad. My kids can almost ask me for anything. On the right day, they're going to get it. They know that. I mean, and when the windows open, they send their siblings. Man, Dad's in that giving mood again. And it's time. You better ask him because the window's open. What's going on in my heart? I hate saying no to them. I want to say yes to them. If I can find a way to say yes to the thing they're asking for, I love to say yes. If I can't, or if I'm in a crummy mood, that happens also. But when I'm in that mood, like, see, God is such a better dad than I am. Should it shock us? Should it shock us to see blessings getting scooped onto these two women over and over and over? And even pointing forward to the future and saying, hey, in the future, this one's going to be a, a restorer of life to you. It's in the heart of God to be kind to you. Do you know that? I know that some of you, 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 you view God kind of like Caitlin's husband, Mike, following you with this. He's, he's following. He's a state trooper. He hasn't pulled you over yet, but he's... he's Three car lengths behind you, and he's watching your every driving move, right? That's how some of you view God. M Mike's a great guy, by the way. <laughs> he's the nicest trooper I've ever met. And I haven't met many. I'm kidding. Right, but you, you view God as kind of angry and waiting to get you. He's got the lightning bolt loaded, and he's just waiting for you to make that one mistake. You failed the signal. Boom! Right? He's not like that. This is who He is. You know, yes, the Redeemer will be a restorer of life, but He's only channeling the kindness, the goodness of God to restore life to a woman that He loves, Naomi. He's going to restore life to you. The dream that you had when you were a young lady, it's not dead in God's eyes. Not only that, a nourisher in your old age. So He's just covered the gamut. He's gone from the dream that you had as a, as a young woman to the dream you don't even know that you've got as an older lady. He's going to be the one that nourishes that. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Nourishment has to do with eating and satisfaction. And God cares about that. He's going to shelter you. He's going to provide for you. Not only through the grandson, but also through this daughter-in-law, Ruth, who loves you. She's better to you than seven sons. Now you need to know that in this culture, any woman would give anything to have two sons. Two sons would be a jackpot. Seven sons is just ridiculous. Nobody could possibly have that, right? She says, Ruth is better to you than the wildest dream of having seven sons. Why? Because those seven sons would be the ones who would surround you, care for you, cherish you, and love you when you are older take care of you. He says, Ruth is better to you than even seven sons. 
And there it is, that beautiful picture that God intended you to see. Naomi took the child, laid him on her lap, and she became his nurse. Can you see that look on Naomi's face? And she picked up that chubby little guy. And she just sat him on her lap, and she just smiled at him. And she just patted his little back until he burped. And then she whispered prayers of gratitude and praise to God for the child she's now holding in her lap. It didn't bother her at any time to get spit up on. She loved it. She was happy with that. This was the dream she would have never imagined now sitting in her lap. Now friends, I want you to see there's a reason why this is all here. Because it's so unlikely. Remember, the arc of the story is chapter 1. Defeat, destruction. Everybody is just uh, limping along. There's a lot of hurt there. But in the midst of chapter 1, there's this little grain of faith that's moving them forward through the darkness. They're trusting in God, though none of their circumstances would lead them to trust in God. And I so want you to feel and embrace that. I want you to know that God sees where you are and that He is a redeemer, a restorer of life to you, and He is a nourisher of your old age. God sees the arc of your life and intends to do you good. Look at how this keeps going. After Naomi takes him in her, in her arms and lays him on her lap and says, The women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to who? To Naomi. And they named him Obed, which means servant. And he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And this is kind of one of those wow moments. Like to us again, no big deal. It's a big deal when they heard it. Ruth's a Moabite. Ruth comes from a bad line, right? Yeah, but he, she is a part of the lineage of. King David and eventually King Jesus. There's something beautiful here for us to consider and it's in this genealogy. Now, I want to read this genealogy and I want you to just slow down and, and, and hear some of the beauty that's in it. These are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. And Hezron fathered Ram. And Ram fathered Aminadab. And Aminadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Salmon. And Salmon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. Jesse fathered David. And this is something we kind of tend to cruise right over when we read, right? Oh, another genealogy. That's nice. Blah, blah, blah. You know, hold on. You need to know that there's some interesting stories involved in this. And there's a reason that they're there. When it starts with the generations of Perez, the original readers would have gone, oh dear, here we go. <laughs> really? You're going to bring up Perez? Well, again, I just want to point you to Genesis chapter 38. This is the story of Judah and Tamar. Now, some of you are going, Judah, Tamar, whatever. Hang on. This is a terrible, ugly wart in the story of God and the people of God. Perez is the child of Judah and Tamar. Tamar was a woman who had been 
uh, cheated out of her opportunity to be a mother and to raise children by her dead husband's brother and her dead husband's father. And all of a sudden she is like, I've been left out. And so she decides to disguise herself as a prostitute and get her father, Judah, to sleep with her. No big deal, right? I mean, if you're building a resume and you're trying to build credibility, this is the kind of stuff you skip. And these genealogies really are like a list of names that tell you the story of how God accomplished what he accomplished. My wife's a technical recruiter. Chris is a recruiter. You know, sometimes you look at a candidate and go, your resume needs a little bit of shaping up. Let's tweak this. Let's leave that out. Let's accentuate this, right? This is the kind of stuff that you don't start with. Perez, no. Because that's an ugly story. And yet God takes ugly stories and redeems them. I know that for some of you, you've got a chapter in your life somewhere that you're ashamed of. Or, it's not that you're ashamed, but you're broken by it. You are utterly, completely broken by it. It hurts. Right? Just watch God take that lemon and make lemonade. He's, he's brilliant at this. It starts with Perez. And, and there are a lot of people that go, man, can we just skip that part? No, we don't skip that part. One, the Bible never hides its warts of its people, right? It's almost like an invitation to say, if you think that God's so good to Ruth, but you could never imagine him doing it for you, all you got to do is read the genealogy and go, huh. So he really does use broken people, doesn't he? Well, we start with Perez, and then we move on down, and it talks about this guy named Salmon, or Salmon. I like grilled salmon. Uh, I don't think that's what he's talking about, but why, why does his name stand out? Do you know who his wife was? Lady named Rahab. Rahab. Where do you know that name? Isn't she Rahab? Yeah, Rahab the harlot. Rahab the prostitute, right? Oh, God. You're, oh, dear. No. Were you really going to add this guy? Yeah, we're really going to add this guy. You know, this woman, Rahab, is not a part of the nation of Israel. Neither is Ruth. Neither is Tamar. And yet God folded them right in. And he used their brokenness to do it. This, and again, someday you'll be in heaven and when you meet Rahab, don't go, yeah, wait a minute, Rahab, Rah I know you, Rahab the, Rahab the noble, <laughs> right? If you say Rahab the harlot, you know, it's like, that, that'd be kind of a terrible, what if she returned the favor? Yeah, you're Steve the gossip, <laughs> right? Or, <laughs> I mean, not that we would do that in heaven, but... Uh, it's kind of a rough thing that we know as Rahab the harlot. But here's the thing. Our sins are part of how God, in His redeeming grace, uses uh, that brokenness to tell His story of grace. And then we move on and we find not only that, but Boaz. So Boaz's mom is, uh, is Rahab. Father Obed. Obed Father Jesse. And Jesse fathered David, the great king of Israel. All of this matters to us today. All of it. Because any single one of us, no matter what's your history, God can use you. God is eager to say yes to you. God is eager to redeem what is broken in you. God is eager to take the thing that most hurts, turn it around for His purpose and for His good, and use it as part of your story and how God is at work. 
in your life. Listen, your story of how God is at work in you is very compelling to those who are out wandering and lost from God right now. So I invite you not to push away from the idea that God uses your brokenness, your wounds, your hurt as a part of His story, His story of grace. How do we know that? We know that because of Jesus who was unashamed to go to a cross for us. He was unashamed to be numbered among transgressors and acquainted with grief. Not because he was guilty of anything. We were. We were. And God uses that in that brokenness. We come to him and say, I have nothing to trade you. Nothing. I have nothing that I can exchange so that you will love me. Just take me in all of this chaos, all of this hurt, and this brokenness. Take me like you took Ruth, like you took Tamar, like you took Rahab. We're no different. Every last one of us need grace. Every last one of us, when that grace comes into our life, can be used as a vessel of God's grace to others. We can trust Him because He gave His Son for us.